Support for Unscripted comes from the Institute of International Humanitarian Affairs at Fordham University. Take your career to the next level and earn an international diploma in humanitarian assistance. It's a four-week intensive program taught by practicing humanitarian professionals in locations around the world, from Kathmandu to Amman, New York to Geneva. Students will learn how to facilitate dialogue and cooperation between governments and civil society, how to be more effective during humanitarian crises, and more. For more information on the upcoming program dates and locations, visit the link in our episode description and click on International Diploma in Humanitarian Assistance. Hi, I'm Casey Candela. And I'm Stephanie Fillion, and welcome to Unscripted. Today... The United Nations is in solution mode and asking member states and non-state militias to stop their wars in Yemen, Syria, Libya, and elsewhere to fight what it calls our common enemy, the coronavirus. But political barriers remain. On this bonus episode, a member of the General Assembly President's team answers the burning question of what options are on the table for the UN General Assembly in September. And we look at what would happen if the Secretary General becomes incapacitated during their term. What is the line of succession? This is Unscripted, a podcast taking you inside the United Nations and beyond the scripted debates to the people at the heart of it all the diplomats and the reporters covering them. For the coronavirus outbreak, Unscripted is ramping up our coverage by offering an additional episode this week. There's so much happening at the UN to try and find a global solution to this global problem. We want to keep you up to date, even as the UN is pretty much physically shut down in New York City. Right now, New York is the epicenter of the virus in the United States, which has the most cases in the world right now. We at Pass Blue are all working remotely from across North America, Canada, Buffalo, Brooklyn, Pennsylvania, and Florida. This week, we have a very special guest, Maris Coria, from the office of the President of the General Assembly, Tijani Mohamed Bande, who will tell us more about her role and the status of the GA amid the coronavirus. She's in charge of the logistics for the 193-member body during the crisis. We also talked to Pass Blue's very own Laura Kirkpatrick, who will tell us about a rather grim but important story. What is the line of succession in the U.N. Secretariat? Here in the U.S., we know that if something happens to President Trump, the vice president, Mike Pence, will take over. But who is the equivalent of vice president to Secretary General Antonio Guterres? Well, the answer to that question is not that simple. More about that later on the show. But first, let's do a quick recap of COVID-19's impact on the UN. In the Security Council, there are the usual disruptors, Russia, which until recently was the only country in the council still pushing to have in-person meetings at the UN. But so far, Russia is agreeing to meet online with the council's other 14 members. Other UN member states in the Council seem to be more at ease doing their work online, mostly by video conferencing. I mean, it's not as if they have a choice, but it may be the new normal. Members of the Security Council even tweeted some pictures of an online session, showing them meeting digitally in their homes or offices. We can see the usual Security Council diplomats attending their online meeting. 
And I must say, one thing that I noticed about the video conference photo on Twitter is the dress code. UN headquarters is traditionally business attire, but it's a question worth asking. Do you need to dress as formally for online meetings as you do for in-person meetings? If the Security Council is any example, we saw a wide range of styles for the online meetings. A diplomat from Niger wore a gray sweater, while the Chinese ambassador was in a full suit and tie. Well, if members of the Security Council can wear sweaters in their meetings, I guess we all can. So that's one question sorted. But it's not only the Security Council that is getting used to working digitally. The Secretary General does as well. We don't hear a lot about what he says in mainstream media, but through an online media briefing, a first for Antonio Guterres, he made a quite strong and important appeal on Monday, March 23rd. He asked for countries embroiled in war to stop fighting to help the global fight against the coronavirus. The virus does not care about nationality or ethnicity, faction or face. It attacks all relentlessly. Meanwhile, armed conflict rages on around the world. The most vulnerable, women and children, people with disabilities, the marginalized and displaced, pay the highest price. They are also at the highest risk of suffering devastating losses from COVID-19. Let's not forget that in war-ravaged countries, health systems have collapsed. Health professionals, already few in number, have often been targeted. Refugees and others displaced by violent conflict are doubly vulnerable. The fury of the virus illustrates the folly of war. That is why today I am calling for an immediate global ceasefire in all corners of the world. It is time to put armed conflict on lockdown and focus together on the true fight of our lives. To warring parties, I say, pull back from hostilities, put aside mistrust and animosity, silence the guns, stop the artillery, end the airstrikes. This is crucial to help create corridors for life-saving aid, to open precious windows for diplomacy, to bring hope to places among the most vulnerable to COVID-19. Of course, the Secretary General's worldwide appeal for peace did not get nearly as much attention in the media as President Trump's call to reopen the country's economy by Easter. But some countries and rebel groups are listening to Guterres. Yes, they did listen, but have not necessarily acted on it. Some countries devastated by war, such as Syria and Libya, are still more focused on fighting factions rather than the virus. But there has been some positive progress. One rebel group in the Philippines so far said it would comply with Guterres' request. The Saudi-led coalition in Yemen also supports the ceasefire, along with the Houthi rebels there. That's a big conflict to watch, as the pandemic could pause war. And the Secretary General has also noted the temporary ceasefire announced by the Southern Cameroon's Defense Force on March 25th. It's great news, but we'll see what happens. It's one thing to announce a ceasefire. It's another to act on it. And for the countries devastated by war or poverty, the UN has also launched a $2 billion humanitarian response to fight the virus across South America, Africa, the Middle East and Asia as the virus is spreading across most already fragile regions. So it's fair to say that the week of March 16th, the focus of the UN was on organizing most of its staff. But this week, the UN is back in action mode. 
On Friday, March 27th, the president of the General Assembly called a briefing with the Secretary General, the president of the Security Council, currently China, and the president of the Economic and Social Council, or ECOSOC, about the future of work at the UN. They're giving a joint digital meeting is one of the many things happening at the UN right now that has never happened before. They announced the Security Council elections should still take place in June and answered questions asked by some member states. Some countries that don't have a seat on the council asked about its lack of transparency during the crisis. So we got a feeling that there was some discontent here. Ambassador Chang, permanent representative of China, showed up with his gavel and book on the UN Charter and seemed pretty comfortable talking about these questions. His main answer is that there are technical limitations to being transparent. But the way the Security Council has worked this week is still not back to normal because many meetings were canceled. And the meetings that did take place are not available online, as the in-person meetings were. Some of the challenges may be technical, but we'll see if things change as the Dominican Republic takes over the Security Council presidency in April. And despite efforts to keep working, the Council has failed to produce a resolution on the pandemic's threat to international peace and security. According to an NBC News report, a draft resolution on coronavirus stalled because the U.S. wanted it to mention that Wuhan, China, was the source of the virus. So the draft resolution failed. And a General Assembly resolution is also circulating among member states, and we obtained a copy. But this one discussed the need to avoid racism and xenophobia while addressing the coronavirus crisis. And the General Assembly is facing its own challenges to meetings and continuing its work. To discuss how the work of the GA is being transformed in a pandemic, we have with us Maris Coria, the chef de cabinet of the president of the General Assembly, Tijani Mohamed Bande. Bande's term is one year, ending in September, and he is from Nigeria. She was formerly Norway's deputy permanent representative in New York, but before being posted in New York City, Skoda represented her country in Afghanistan and was also the first NATO Secretary General's Special Representative for Women, Peace, and Security from 2010 to 2012. She's been playing a central role in organizing the GA's work remotely. Let's hear the interview. Hi, Mary, and thank you for being with us. Hi, Stephanie. Thank you for having me. So can you first tell me, you know, what the last few weeks have been like for you? Are you working from home? Are you working from your office? And what kind of tasks are under your umbrella right now? Well, Stephanie, these have been uh, a few past weeks which have been extraordinary. Of course, I think for all of us, uh, we were not really prepared for this pandemic uh, to have such an enormous influence on our lives. Unfortunately, for so many people that are taken ill. So it did change uh, both my outlook on the world and what we're doing and what's important. And of course, also how we are working. So um, we were, of course, aware of this uh, pandemic, which is now pandemic, uh, a few weeks back. And we started to uh, follow the situation closely to enable us to make quick decisions and uh, very quickly. It came to that, that I asked all our staff to work from home and that only essential staff would come into the office and work from the office. And uh, soon after that, we were really trying to scale down even more. 
the work situation is it's fine really i'm very uh, concerned of course about the diplomatic community about the broader community in this wonderful city of new york but uh, somehow you know we are pulling together and uh, working together to enable us to do our work so so we are working a lot from home and uh, i think that uh, some of us that were not that good at ict <laughs> we have really tried to progress and uh, are now much more able to work through virtual and technological means and is the president of the general assembly still going to the un from time to time from time to time. So today we had uh, a joint brief with the Secretary General, the President of the Economic and Social Council, uh, and also the President of the Security Council for March. Uh, so we, uh, he came in here today to do the briefing from his office here today, but just with a few staff uh, that were supporting this effort. Okay. And so what are your relationship with the member states right now? Because, you know, you have General Assembly really deals with 193 countries. Uh, so how are you making like sure that, you know, you're in touch like every day with, uh, with them? So in many ways, you know, the, the, the work has been very intense. And uh, in many ways, my contact with member states and representatives of member states have intensified and increased. So I am in touch with them individually on the phone or through WhatsApp or other means, uh, soliciting their uh, views on how we should progress as a General Assembly. As you mentioned, the General Assembly consists of 193 member states. And uh, we are following, of course, uh, the advice and the guidance given that we should not have physical in-person meetings. Uh, so adhering to that, uh, we have now just processed a decision that would enable us to pass decisions of the General Assembly through silence procedure, which is, has not been done before, and which is an extraordinary and temporary measure that would allow uh, the General Assembly to go forward with certain essential work strands. I admire very much our fifth committee delegates who are dealing with budgetary and administrative matters. Because, you know, of course, uh, for any organization, but it's essential to have budget. And our colleagues in the fifth committee, they are pursuing their negotiations through virtual meetings. And now we actually have a draft decisions before us, which we will present to the General Assembly through silence procedure. So I think these extraordinary times, they enable us also to do extraordinary things and be very creative. We'll be right back. Support for Unscripted comes from the Partnership for Transparency, a group of volunteer international development specialists. They work to advance good governance in developing countries by supporting civil society organizations. PTF believes governments alone can't be expected to stop corruption. Their latest research shows that well-designed, citizen-led programs to strengthen transparency and accountability can produce better outcomes than state-led initiatives. PTF's report has practical recommendations for how empowered, engaged, and professional non-government actors can advance Sustainable Development Goal 16. To read the report or learn more about PTF's work, visit ptfund.org. Now, back to the show. 
And can you tell me maybe a little bit about what are your priorities? You know, what is necessary to do and what is not? So what in terms of your office are the priorities, but also in terms of meetings, you know, what's going to take place, what's not going to take place? So we have really focused on enabling the General Assembly to make decisions without having sort of physical gathering. So that has been a key priority. And I think we have been successful and concluding that procedure today. We have cancelled all physical meetings, but I'm very happy that, you know, the, some of the processes, for instance, the process leading up to the celebration of the 75th anniversary of the United Nations that will take place in September is continuing also that through written and virtual means as many of the other negotiation processes under the General Assembly. When it comes to uh, the priorities of the President of the General Assembly, I do think actually that this crisis, this pandemic, uh, underscores the necessity for member states to not only reaffirm, but to follow through on their commitments on Agenda 2030 for sustainable development. It has become much more important, not less. But we understand, of course, that uh, already there was a huge financial gap and we understand that the impact of this pandemic on, in particular, developing countries would require an extraordinary mobilization of funds. So I think that the financing aspects will be critical in the, in the time to come. So, but we will maintain focus on poverty eradication and zero hunger. I think the General Assembly, the whole membership of the United Nations, they have promised to leave nobody behind. And this also becomes even more important than ever. But if I may, I would also like to highlight, you know, at the last high-level week of the General Assembly last September, there was a high-level meeting on global health, on the need for a universal health system. And that is, of course, also very wisdom of our leaders to focus on that uh, and the need for robust health systems. And so talking about global health, what sort of message does your office want to send about universal health care? Well, I think it's really important to understand and follow through at the national level to build robust health systems. And I do believe that was really the key message in the resolution or the declaration that came out of this high-level uh, meeting. But I do also think that health is for everyone it's a basic right for everyone. So it's not only the rich during uh, crises like this that should have access to adequate health. What's going to be done in the future on this front? Well, I think it's really up to member states to ensure that they follow through on their commitments. But what I have noticed already is that the World Health Organization, the Secretary General of the United Nations, and many of the large institutions set up to support sustainable development, they are already coming out with new initiatives and commitments to support, in particular, poorer countries, for them to be able to face this crisis, to deal with the pandemic, but also to deal with the terrible impact this pandemic has on the social and economic development. The UN headquarters is based in New York City, and so now New York is the epicenter of the pandemic. And of course, the situation in New York City is very unpredictable right now. 
but I'm sure that you still have in mind, you know, you mentioned the UN 75th celebration, and I'm sure that you have in mind, and member states have in mind as well, the yearly very important meeting of a General Assembly in September, the high-level meeting. Can you say anything about it? What are you thinking so far? Are you still planning ahead? The situation in, in New York is precarious, and you know my heart really goes out to everyone in our community in this great city during these difficult times. But of course, I think uh, we do need to look ahead. The UN is resilient, as the New Yorkers are, and we are certainly planning for the high-level week in September. There has been already made a number of decisions by the General Assembly on what this week would look like. This week would, uh, of course, mark the 75th anniversary of the United Nations. It will, of course, uh, have a strong general debate. And I'm sure that um, if the situation allows that we will have many heads of states and governments visiting during those days. We will also focus on the commemorate Beijing plus 25 and the, the rights of the women and the achievements uh, that we have made so far and we will focus on nuclear disarmament, as well as there will be a biodiversity summit. So planning for the week is really has been ongoing for a long time. And I do also think that this week will provide an ample opportunity to, to mark Agenda 2030 and the fact that we have entered the decade of implementations. So lots of planning already. Of course, we cannot really predict the situation. If we are in the same situation as we are now, where we cannot, uh, without great risk for public health, gather and many people together at the same time in the same room, then of course we do need to think differently. So what's in your mind? Are you thinking of maybe a virtual meeting? Are you thinking maybe of a place that's not affected as much as New York City? Uh, what's on your mind right now? Well, we haven't planned really anything concretely. You know, I think that virtual meetings and outreach through the social media, we can go far with that. But, you know, there are some issues, you know, that are best discussed face-to-face -face also. <laughs> but we will have to see as the situation evolves if uh, the situation will allow for gathering of a lot of people. Is there anything else that, your office would like people to know or you think is important to discuss at this time? So the UN is here to support the people that needs the most. And the General Assembly will continue to deliberate and it's the world's most representative fora. And we will continue to deliberate and develop both policies and guidance to countries. Great. Thank you so much, Mary, for taking the time and being with us. And best of luck. Keep the work going. <laughs> Thank you, Stephanie, and best of luck to you, and please do stay safe. Thank you so much. With the coronavirus crisis, new questions arise daily. The Secretary General said it himself. This virus does not discriminate. Some members of the U.S. Congress have it. The leader of the Italian Democratic Party has it too, and now even Prince Charles of the United Kingdom and Prime Minister Boris Johnson. So Antonio Guterres is surely aware that he's not immune to it either. So what would happen if the UN Secretary General couldn't work? Past Blue reporter Laura Kirkpatrick had this exact question about the line of succession at the UN. And it was a very popular story for us this week. 
It may be a morbid topic, but we have to ask the question. Here's the interview. Hi, Laura. Hi, Stephanie. So I was thinking about it, and I wasn't sure how I would approach the Secretary General team with such a question. So how do you do it? That's a really good question, because it, it turns out that if you ask point blank, is there a line of succession, people don't really get back to you that quickly. And there's a couple of reasons for that, but I found myself using, like, is he unavailable? And if the chance that he's unable to continue working that day, and paraphrasing a lot. And one of the reasons that you can't just bluntly ask line of succession is that there isn't one. The UN Charter doesn't lay out anything beyond how to elect the Secretary General. And to do that, it's essentially nominated by the Security Council and presented to the General Assembly to vote on. So it makes sense that the Security Council having all the control isn't about to give it up and spread it around and delineate the process as part of the charter. <laughs> so what is the good way to ask it then? It turns out you just need to find the right person on the spokesman's staff who's very patient and finally says, aha, you're trying to figure this out and helps you get through it. <laughs> it was funny because there were a lot of euphemisms going back and forth. And so it, it, it took a while. It took longer than I thought it would. <laughs> and so what did they end up saying other than the UN Charter? So it turns out that anytime the, the Secretary General is unable to do his job, whether from being away, I mean, hopefully at some point the Secretary General takes a vacation too. There is an officer who's named, it's usually the Deputy Secretary General. If the Deputy Secretary General and the Secretary General our way. It's the chef de cabinet, and you can probably say that a lot better than I do, so I apologize. And if all three are away, it would go to an undersecretary from a specific program. But in the event that any of those three need to assume the position, they would be purely acting. There isn't like the chancellor of the exchequer to the prime minister or the vice president to the U.S. president. There isn't really a definitive, like, should something happen, this person will fill the rest of the term. That power rests completely with the Security Council. So whoever steps up would be stepping up until the Security Council named an acting and then permanent replacement. Hmm. But um, losing a Secretary General is something that's also happened uh, to the UN before. What happened then? Can you remind me? Sure. It's, it's, a, it's actually a really interesting story. Um, only one secretary general has died in office, and it was Doug Hammerskjold, whose plane went down flying from the Congo to what was Rhodesia at the time. And his plane went down kind of mysteriously and left a void. So, of course, the charter, as we, we just talked about, has Article 97, which talks about the process of naming a secretary general, but it, it there's nothing that even says in the case of, you know, break glass here. So the plane went down in 1961, and the, this was the height of the Cold War. So there, there were essentially blocks within the UN, a Soviet-led bloc and a U.S. Western bloc that disagreed on how to fill it. The Soviets attempted to use this void to change the Secretary General to a troika, uh, based on post-World War II power and ge geography. And the 
U.S.-led Western Bloc wanted to keep it as one person. So the negotiations on just what the role of the Secretary General would be went on for two months. And eventually, an ambassador from what was then Burma and is now Myanmar, named Uthant, was named acting Secretary General. And within a month of his term as acting, he was named the permanent replacement by the Security Council. But it was two separate votes by the Security Council. And when they voted the second time, they extended Hammarskjöld's original term that Thant was filling. So on a weird side trivia note, he's also the longest serving Secretary General because he's served more than the two five-year term limit by two months. Another side of that that's really interesting is that Kofi Annan, when he was Secretary General in the late 70s, created the position of Deputy Secretary General. It's someone that the Secretary General can appoint and is the right-hand man who can step in at any time, but that person is not a permanent replacement. Like the Security Council, at the end of the day, the whole power to appoint a Secretary General rests in the Security Council and is mired in kind of the whole regional nomination process and the politics of the UN at whatever moment it is to name a Secretary General. There's really no line of secession because so much of it rests in the Security Council. Hmm. I'm sure the Secretary General's team told you is very healthy right now. He is very healthy. I talked to one source about this who is even reassuring to me that he, um, while he is going into the UN intermittently, uh, he's probably very safe there because it's empty. Also, the source said he's being driven in a sanitized car to the UN, driven back to his secure sanitized apartment. So he's probably one of the safest men on the planet. It was interesting the day I was filing the article, the Secretary General gave a virtual briefing with Melissa Fleming, the Undersecretary General for Communications, and said he was strongly determined. So I think that kind of sums up how he's feeling in his own words, which was kind of nice to see a 70-year-old man who's got a lot resting on him be able to say. Great. Thank you so much, Laura. Thank you very much for having me, Stephanie. That's it for our show. This episode was produced by me, Casey Candela, and reported by Stephanie Filion for Pass Blue, an independent women-led media site covering the United Nations and global affairs. Dulcie Leimbach is our editor. AI Digital created our podcast logo, and our music is by Poddington Bear. A lot happens at the UN beyond what we report in each episode of Unscripted, and Pass Blue is covering the important news from women's rights to human rights to the Trump effect on the UN. For day-to-day coverage, follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And to subscribe to our newsletter, go to passblue.com. Pass Blue's in-depth and exclusive stories and this podcast are possible with the support of the Carnegie Corporation of New York, the New School, and listeners like you. To show your support, visit Pass Blue's website and click Donate. Unscripted is available wherever you find podcasts. If you like today's show, please rate us on iTunes and share with all your friends.